podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning. Today's show is inspired by a Twitter response. Someone added me at Tropical MBA. Dude, you need to do a pod app for DC jobs candidates on how to apply for a job and make a resume that sells. It hurts my heart seeing bad resumes that sell poorly. Fix this problem. And my DC jobs experience as an employer is two to five times better. I got to point out as a business owner, we do have some products that solve this problem, including filtering, done for you, all that kind of stuff. This hurts my heart too. Part of the reason we made candidate profiles and we're just taking stabs at it, but I believe in the potential of every candidate to do a better job, to have a better chance to get their dream remote job. So the second half of today's episode, we're going to go through some of the specifics of what great resumes look like. I think even for the business owners out there, there'll be some value in that for you. So that tweeter is longtime entrepreneur and DC member, Brennan Tully. And he's been doing a lot of hiring recently. So I thought it'd be interesting to get him back on the show and talk about what makes a good application, both for applicants and owners. But I, I just want to do a general catch up because I've always had so many great in-person conversations with Brennan. I thought we'd do it here live for you today. And that's especially interesting to me today because the path that Brennan's been on is one that Ian and myself are on today, You know, going from a six-figure run rate to a seven-figure one and making that transition and looking to the future and dealing with all the challenges that come with that. So it's like a shift of mindset, practices, your team composition is different, your product looks different. So I'm going to get Brennan's thoughts about that, and then Ian and I will chime in in the middle of the episode to give some of our reflections. But let's start where Brennan's at. So he's the founder and CEO of Robot Media which has a few brands underneath it, which helps small businesses get more traffic and better conversions. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about products that fit under that robot media umbrella, including SEO consulting, WordPress hosting, and speed optimization at WP Speed Fix, which he started just three years ago and now has around 11 team members. So I kicked off by asking Brennan why WP Speed Fix has become his priority and also about some of the challenges he's facing. I turned 40 last year and I really like one thing that I'm bad at is, you know, this hustle thing. So I'm trying not to hustle or work hard. I'm trying to do the hard thinking. So like for the next decade, I'm like... Hard thinking and, and better decisions beats hard work every time, or almost every time. So I'm really trying to like focus on being smarter strategically and making better decisions. So some of those are scary, like just committing to a, a path that you can't reverse out of that's going to be, you know, require a lot of capital or or it's going to affect the team or whatever. Because like, you know, we've 10 or 11 people now, so you make a bad decision and, you know, you potentially have to let people go if you can't afford to pay them. So. So some of those things are hard and, and I don't have a business partner like you, which I do miss. I have had business partners in the past. It's hard not having someone to bounce that off or 
like those ideas off or be in the trenches with like it's some ways it's a lot easier when you've got someone there who's like in the shit with you kind of thing brennan you ran an agency and you still run an agency for a very long time i'm curious like all the time on this show we talk about some of the challenges of running an agency we often reflect that it requires like the best entrepreneurs to run an agency because there are like so many skills like the operation has to be changing all the time. You have to have high sales skills typically. You have to have high technical skills that got you into the game in the first place. Do you relate to those problems having done it yourself for over a decade? Yeah, I mean, it's hard when you see, I guess, guys who you know run an FBA business. They start it and three years later, they're exiting for big multiples. And it's tough sometimes with a service business to pull yourself out of it. One thing I find with a service business is it needs a lot of that, like you call it shower thinking time, I think is what you call it, something like that, like that really high quality thinking and those insights that you can't kind of brute force. Like again, coming back to hard thinking, I think in a service business, it requires a lot more of that, a lot more of the time. Like that I find quite challenging, especially and the market moves over time as well. So I am involved in some other businesses, some product businesses, and you can kind of forget about them for six months and they'll run themselves. Whereas I don't think you can do that with a service business. I think that's one of the hardest things. It's not just a like service business is not set and forget. And you're right, like there's a lot of errors you have to be across. But it also, I guess for me, I've done it so long. Like I've, I think I started my first business in 99. So I've been doing this for like 22 years. So I think some of it is habit. Some of it I'm addicted to like the challenge or maybe the high of solving the problems as well. So it really feels like WP Fix is this classic kind of you're pulling out like this highly focused vertical that you would have done in an agency context. And now you're presenting it as a productized service. I'm just curious about how that aha moment came about because it does seem like it's it's doing really well for you. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know if there's any aha moments. I've only fairly recently in the last 12 or 18 months taken it seriously after kind of neglecting it and it just kept growing. It's it's a productized service, which is a lot easier than straight consulting. I, I still, I have corporate consulting clients and basically they're paying for that, that high quality output and they're paying for, you know, that's just straight services, straight consulting services. It's high dollars per hour, but it's still services. Whereas something like WP Speedfix, it is very productized and it's gone through different kind of versions that used to be way more productized, productized that used to be a simple checklist. And now it's, it's moving back towards consulting and, that's kind of one of the challenges we're having right now is how do we charge more for this service or make more margin? But yeah, the productized service nature of it makes it a lot more appealing than just straight agency work or, or straight consulting. So I guess that's why I was stuck with it. And like we did a, a rebrand or a, we built a new site at the start of December or we pushed it live two days before Christmas actually. And at 3x the lead conversion rate like two days before Christmas, which continued on. And Scott, who handles the sales inquiries, went on holiday. So that wasn't great timing. But, <laughs> and it is like attractive, like the productized nature makes it very attractive. So many of us listening are service entrepreneurs. And this is like a dream scenario you're outlining here that you've identified. It kind of feels like you could, while you're in your agency boat, you know, you could put a bunch of bait in the water behind you sort of thing. Yeah. So I wrote a blog post 
about site speed. So anytime that I have a conversation more than a couple of times, I'll typically aim to put up some content for it so I don't have to have that conversation again. And then I can just, you know, reply with, hey, go check this out. Actually, I did a podcast with 100 episodes that we don't do anymore. But the whole reason why we started that is because we used to do these workshops and training in person which would answer all of those questions. And then we stopped doing the workshops. So then we decided to do a podcast to kind of answer those questions in audio format. I got asked this about site speed all the time. I had a very simple way of fixing it. I put up a blog post. People started emailing more and more about it. So we put up a contact form with a buy button. People started buying it and then it just evolved from there. So I guess I had unique insights and a unique way of attacking this problem or dealing with this problem. If there's something you feel you have a unique perspective or insights on or something that's you know contrary to what's out there in the the general blogosphere or or whatever online, then you know putting out some content, podcasts, whatever, and just testing the waters, you know, see if it gets traction. You mentioned you were facing some challenges. Maybe let us know some of them what they are and how you're thinking through them. So one challenge is so right now we're we're basically selling hours in a fancy way. So we're bundling together some kind of unique processes that we've built over time with some hours and we're selling that. It's still just selling hours. So that's problematic because there's a scale problem there. There's only so many hours you can buy and sell. You sell more stuff, you need more hours to sell, which means you need a bigger team. So there's like a, right now it can only really scale linearly or like maybe there's, you know, we can use software a bit to deal with more clients with less staff, but it's still, we're selling time. So that's one issue. And then the the one-time nature of the business is also problematic because every sale or a large number of the sales need a salesperson. So we actually need to deal with an inquiry, sell someone, and they give us money, and then then we're done. Whereas if we had some sort of recurring revenue service, we do the sale one time and then potentially get paid for years, which is really like a, a customer lifetime value thing as well. So those are probably the two things I'm dealing with is we have some recurring products, but it's not really our focus right now. So getting that dialed in and not selling just hours, not just being a fancy way to sell hours or time or whatever. And we do, we, there are some projects in process. So offering hosting, like a lot of those customers just need better hosting and, and that configured properly. So that's one way to solve that problem. I'm having, we're having some back and forth internally about how do we sell SEO services to these guys that doesn't so one problem with selling SEO services is with SEO you can do a bunch of work and actually go backwards so that's hard when you're selling a productized service because you actually have raw cost of that time and hours and people so you need to have some predictability in there it's hard to like one of the techniques I've seen brought up on the show a few times that I'm always impressed by is when productized services attach their price to a like a deliverable rather than a result. Tommy Joyner's old business, contentpros.io, would just sell the blog posts, but not the results that the blog posts were coming from. The problem with the SEO services is you cannot control the outcome. Like it's Google changes the algo and you know all of a sudden the site tanks, even though you've put hundreds of hours of work into it. So yeah. that's definitely a challenge with selling something like SEO services. Whereas like if you're selling paid traffic, you pay money, you get traffic, something happens. Like you, you actually get some sort of result, even though you might not get any sales, but you're getting traffic. So there's a lot more predictability there and you can kind of, you know what your cost base is roughly and how much margin you can make off that and, and, you know, and so forth. 
I want to offer SEO services in a way, and we can definitely do it. We have a product that would work, but just packaging that so it's commercial and we don't get stuck in this scenario where we're on the hook for hundreds of hours of labor without making any money off that. That's something that we're still working out. I realized, you know, when I took a look at our hiring services is that because we had, I thought our like hygiene was too good in terms of like, we weren't failing enough for our clients. So in other words, like we would only take clients that we knew we could crush it for. And I was kind of like, nah, like, you know, it's, if you fail like 15, 20% of the time, like half the time, like something good happens instead. And the other half the time you like learn something important and then you work that into your overall margin. So you look at it, like you figure out the cost basis of your entire client tell rather than like one client dictating what you do kind of thing. So that's one thing we've been kind of flirting with, but it's tough to implement. What's a fail for you? What does that mean when you say fail? You don't you don't have a hire. You do a six week recruitment thing, and yeah, in our case, it would be like somebody coming to us with expectations. Like I want like this type of person in this country, but like here's the salary, and like our t- our whole team's kind of like, eh, I don't know. What should we do in that situation? We could try to do it, and. I learned this from my business mentor. Like he would just say yes to everything. (laughs) (laughs) That's my problem too. It's like, yeah, sure. We can sell that and just figure it out later. (laughs) I think that works well at the start or when you're being scrappy or small, but you know, once you get to 20 staff, that gets to be a bit of a nightmare for them. Like you might love it as a salesperson or business owner, but I think, yeah, that's problematic when that's how you get employees. who are like, I hate working for this guy. A lot of people listening to this, Brennan, run six-figure service businesses, ones with a couple adjacent staff members, and you know they make a good income for themselves, but they don't quite have that you know seven-figure organization that you've built. I'm curious, like, if you could identify some of the key things that they ought to be thinking about to get to a seven-figure level. It's fundamentally a different business. And this is kind of like we're straddling both worlds at the moment where, you know, we have parts of the business where I'm totally in and sucked into and then other parts that it's like you have to have the CEO hat on and have to be really strict about, I don't do that. The customer is going to have to wait. That fire is going to have to burn until one of the staff can deal with it. It's kind of like, you know, you can have a comfortable business and make a, a few hundred grand a year and then, you know, to really move up. To make you know, seven or eight figures, you have to be in that kind of CEO role. You can't be doing the work. Like one of the problems I have like, is exactly the problem you've described in the past. Of, I can do the work and that's a problem because it, you know, I have a tendency to jump in whereas I should really hand it off to one of the staff. Like I'm just like just this one time I'll, and then two or three hours later, I'm still knee deep in sorting something out for a client and doing it myself. So yeah, it's really like it's a different role. The short answer there is it's a completely different job running a seven or eight figure business to, you know, having a you know, few hundred grand a year as a service provider. I think one of the hard parts about running a bigger business is you have to be mindful of like not just saying yes to everything. Like you have to say no sometimes, even though you want to be like, let's try this because you've got to be, you know, consider margins and if you can actually do it. Like you've got to pay staff to do it. Is it profitable? Are you going to make margin from it? You know, do you end up with just a hundred like broken different ways of doing it rather than one just cohesive product or productized service that you're making consistent margin from all the time? That's a hard tendency to break as like 
someone who sells or, or runs a business, I think that for me that's really tough because I'm just like, yeah, yeah, we can do all that. And it's like some custom weird thing that there's no process for. And yeah, I think about that a lot too because like now all of a sudden you're you're kind of starting to pilot a larger ship. So I've been feeling, you know, sort of the things you're describing now where personally I can kind of do a bunch of different projects, but as a business owner, like I can't like reorient everybody every couple weeks all the time. So I've been finding myself saying things like, I know something needs to be done about X, but I'm going to shelve it until Q4 because like we're just going to stay focused on like this revenue stream or whatever. I think that's the reason like we, we have friends that have sold big businesses and made a lot of money and they go back to, to zero because they like that stage. Like, yeah, I invented this thing from scratch. Like, I think that's definitely a thing. It's like the the classic, like the founder isn't necessarily the person who should be running the business as it grows kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's definitely a thing for sure. The whole reason that we gave Brennan a buzz here today is to talk about the aforementioned job posts and how we can make them better. There's still some of you out there looking for great jobs or deals or even clients. We're going to talk about how to best present yourself with you know Brendan's advice direct from his experience. But first, I had to call the boss man up. Ian, welcome to the pod. You're so busy nowadays. I'm scheduling in on 15-minute time increments. You scheduled in on 15-minute time increments, and then you showed up five minutes late, which is not like you, but the last <laughs> oh, two calls I've had on. with you. I got to bring it up because you're my rock when it comes to being on time, and you're, you've been the one that's late. I'll tell you what, man. This is exactly what I want to talk to you today about. Last year, we were running a six-figure business, okay? And this year, our new business, Dynamite Jobs, did six figures in the first quarter. <laughs> yeah, and uh, pretty cool. I can't show up to calls on time anymore. We did we did six figures in the first quarter, and then you called me up like two days ago, and you're like, "Hey, man, we're gonna start thinking like eight figures, man." I'm like, "Yeah, I like this. You're right. I got to get out of this mindset." <laughs> I was like, "I don't know how to do it though. We just put it out there. Have a good Saturday. Bye." <laughs> anyway, I really was thinking about this conversation, Ian, with Brennan in that context of we're making this transition as I'm speaking with him, and some of the things that we're relating to right now and sort of going through day to day. One is this, I want to flag up the issue of client selection. I sort of have this sense that, you know, when you're just getting started, you're thinking about what people want to buy and you're kind of willing to package up anything and sell it to them because it's you and a small team. But there comes a point when you got to get like a little bit more selective about who you take on and, and assertive about what value you intend to provide. And this essentially boils down to saying no. Yeah. I'd say we have like so we have several products over at Dynamite Jobs right now. You know, one is job postings, the other one is uh, job promotions, and then the other one is our productized service, which is a recruiting service, which is basically done for you hiring. Some of them aren't successful, and some of them are going to get cut. And this is the reason why I'm bringing it up: is product market fit. Until like a couple, maybe like two months ago, I was like, we don't have product market fit because we're on a run rate here of seven figures. Yeah, I tell people like I don't really feel like we have product market fit. And you know, I tell you this and you'd be like, Yeah, well, I, I agree, but most other people would be like, What do you mean? You don't have product market fit. Like you got a business, you got a bunch of people working for you, you got a cash register, all this stuff. And I'm like, Well, most of this stuff isn't sustainable. We're just throwing spaghetti on the wall to see what sticks. And I'm starting now, and this is how fast things change, but I'm starting now to like kinda see some products here that we might have a year or two from now. But if you asked me that question six months ago, I wouldn't have been so sure about it. Yeah. So I think it's to say like 
six and sometimes seven figure businesses, you can be doing stuff, you can be making good income, but you can still not have product market fit, which is kind of crazy to me as I say that. This can happen even at eight figures. Like maybe, who knows? Like maybe these things are numbers agnostic at a certain point. I do think there are certain things that change. I think that that's totally true. And I think a mature business that's doing eight figures definitely has a lot of focus. But to get that focus, you got to kind of go through unfocused times and products that don't necessarily make sense because that's how we distill these products is we do a bunch of things that are not necessarily sustainable to figure out what that focus is. And I feel like we're still kind of in that stage of trying to figure out like, hey, what's worth doing? How can we package this? Can we scale it? What does our team look like when we have 50 people? Let's have a couple of jot of notes down here from what you just said. We just onboarded a brand new, exciting employee, someone who will be on the show in, in the future. And he brings a ton to the table, but has been a long time since he's worked in an organization this small. And one of the things I was saying is like, yeah, here's how it's going to work. We're going to do 50 things and two of them are going to stick. And it's it's a weird, disconcerting process to sometimes go through, even though we've been around this block a bunch of times. That's what being an entrepreneur is about a lot of times. It's just kind of failing. And the other thing that reminds me of like this kind of growth we've been experiencing is just how athletic the entrepreneurial experience can be, Ian, at these early stages. You mentioned how busy we are, how tired we are, how much work there is to do. It reminds me of why there is so much like self-improvement, health, even like psychosubstances like sort of overlap with entrepreneurship. Because I do firmly believe like pushing from six to seven, especially in the early days, if you're going to get to any kind of exit velocity, there is a dependence on your ability to be athletic to move things, to, to see a bunch of failures, to move people past them and to find those one or two things that are going to ultimately work. So one of the most important things, I think, Dan, of getting to that number is not doing all the work yourself. So there's certain things that you have to do. Like I feel very compelled to be on every single sales call to understand the problem that our customers are having. Like I feel deeply passionate about being on that call for a long time. But then when you turn around and you look at like the execution of the work, yeah, I'm going to do some of that, especially in the, in the early days. I'm going to understand it for sure, but then I'm going to hire for it. That's just one of these things that learn from doing this process is like, man, I can only do, and we've said this a million times on the show, but like only do the things that you can do in your organization. If there's somebody else that can do what you can do, then you have to push up the value chain. And I tell you what, Dan, we've like tried and tried and tried with our team members to like instill that in them too. So like they can push up and they can push up and it doesn't always work. But as the entrepreneur, you cannot get stuck in that situation where you're just continuing to deliver the same value that you came in initially to deliver. You have to, you have to up-level yourself. Yeah, it's basically like, you know, you bring home the bacon and then you give it to others before you're totally sure all the bacon's going to come in. Yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of that going on. Let me just say one other thing about that. And this isn't a knock or anything like that. If your love is in the execution, then you're like a craftsman and you're building a different type of business. Like you're probably not going to build something that scales. Maybe you're building yourself like a decent little income or something like that. I mean, I just like, I'm looking behind me here at my shop, Dan, and there's like some really remedial tasks, like grinding metal and like welding things together that I really enjoy doing. (laughs) And 
that's fine. That's like the craftsman in me, you know? And if that's what I want to do all day, then that's totally cool. But like, I'm not going to have 25 employees in my shop and like be building cars for customers all over the world if I'm the guy sitting at the grinder. And it's just that simple. Unless your grinder is one that has a scale dimension to it, which there is, can be the case with web technologies, certain writing, certainly what we're doing here, publishing. So you just have to be clear about like where the scale is coming from. In a services business, the scale for us is going to come through sales and delivery. And so that's going to mean staff and bringing home that bacon. I do think you have to have an eye towards the growth angle, whatever, wherever it's going to come. Totally true. Yeah. It's easy to grind, say in a services business, it's easy to grind the non-scaling you know, task because it might be fun or it might be comfortable. And a lot of the things we're talking about are very uncomfortable. Personally, I find it a little bit uncomfortable to fail given that I'm supposed to be smart entrepreneur. I have to remind myself that being a smart entrepreneur is about doing things that aren't right all the time. It's a know-how. It's not, like I know that's true, but it doesn't mean that I'm good at it on Tuesday afternoon. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that's our job. If you run a growing seven or eight figure remote company, your next productive team member could be just one simple phone call away. Check it out. I'm running an ad for our own stuff. How cool. This week's sponsor is our very own done-for-you recruiting service for remote companies, courtesy of dynamitejobs.com. You can learn more at dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting. Our process starts with a simple, free, no obligation phone call with one of our senior recruiters and often the boss man himself. We'll get a sense for your company, your mission, the candidates you're seeking. We then go out and execute the entire job search on your behalf. That includes marketing to our database as well as taking a lot of the budget from the service fee and going out and proactively marketing your job to third-party sites, services, communities, and so on to ensure you get the best candidates for each individual job. Again, we know how to do all this stuff. We perform all the filtering, the interviews, and the assessments on your behalf. So basically, we're delivering you qualified candidates who are interested in your position, who understand your needs, and are looking to have that final conversation with you about you know whether or not it's a good fit. So obviously, hiring can be a total pain in the butt, but the team at Dynamite Jobs does this stuff every day. We understand remote-first businesses and have the systems and people in place do the job quick and reliably on your behalf. So with our new done-for-you recruiting services, you can stay focused or your team focused on what you guys do best, and we'll take care of the hiring on your behalf. To learn more, head on over to dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting, schedule a call or drop us an email team at dynamitejobs.com. So Ian, the real reason for this call here today with Brennan is that, you know, he tweeted us and said, Hey, like my experience at DJ would be so much better if X, Y, Z. And one of those was improving the quality of candidate applications, something we're working on from a multiple different angles, like none of which has really solved the problem yet, except for like our complete done for you service. However, I thought it'd be really cool to get some of his ideas about this, put them on wax, share them with our candidate database, with our team and with the audience here today. I think everybody has a little bit something to learn from an entrepreneur's perspective on hiring. Today, Brennan's been kind enough to share an excellent example of an application he's recently received and talk about what he as an employer is looking for. 
I actually have the Airtable database up of the recent position that we advertised on Dynamite Jobs, and I have 76 resumes here. And I don't have a lot of time to be looking at these. So, you know, 76 pages, let's say every resume is one or two pages. So that's at least 76 pages I have to read. So I'm like, yes, no, yes, no, as, as quickly as I can. So like, it hurts my heart when I see bad resumes that I'm like, I, I open it up because there's some potential there. And I'm like, I'm working so hard to figure this out. Like this, this is just making me like work and I just don't have the time to be working on it. So I can see that there's there's something here, but I just it's not my job to pull that out of them. I guess we have a job ad up, people apply for that job, and then I think the job ad runs for thirty days. So once a week, or if, when when it goes up initially in the first week, I'll check it every day or every second day, and I'll see what comes through because you'll get a flood of candidates initially or applications initially, whatever you want to call them. And I go through as quickly as possible. I'm just like. So I've got the Airtable open and there's, there's a bunch of columns in the sheet with different things. So we've got location, LinkedIn address, resume. And then I think we're in the last couple of jobs, we asked a couple of questions. So what's your ideal work setup was one of them because this is a remote position. Have you worked remotely before? And then a couple of questions about pay and, and when they're available to start. I'm just going through and filtering, qualifying out, I guess, is is what I'm doing just as quickly as I can. So based on the summary information, and then I'll go through and do a second pass, anything that's not clear, and then I'll, I'll look at the resumes quickly. And it's a similar sort of thing where I'm just scanning the resume. Can you give the context for what the job ad was, like what the skill set was? So the title of the ad is WordPress Customer Facing Developer and Tech Support Ninja. So it is for our WP Speechless business, it is somebody who has WordPress tech skills. Broadly, I call it a mid-level, middleweight WordPress developer. So they're scrappy, they can solve different problems, and they can talk to customers as well. That's why I have the customer-facing bit in there because you do have developers who they just want to do tech stuff. You know, sit in the back room and, and just code all day. So that was the job ad. We've evolved this ad. I think we've hired, I think our last four hires, maybe three hires were from DC Jobs. So this ad's worked pretty well, and we've just refined it based on just getting better candidates over time. So it's working pretty well for us. So some of the things I'm looking for straight away, commercial experience versus non-commercial. And what that probably means is your customer-facing, someone who has experience dealing with lots of different customers is going to be a better fit than someone who has experience only dealing with one customer. They've worked in a time pressure kind of environment where they have to deal with a lot of inputs and prioritize so that's commercial versus non-commercial that's how i think of it i guess and then because this is a remote role i look at remote experience versus not remote experience how heavily do you weigh that and why i'm weighing it more heavily in the last two applications just because it's hard like some things can only be learned they can't be taught if that makes sense like riding a bike for example you can't like yeah tell somebody how to ride a bike yeah, exactly. You can't teach it in a class. You can only learn by getting on the bike and doing it, really. Like some things you're going to learn through experience or just by doing it. So I think with the remote stuff, especially now because of corona over the last year, like you know, people who wouldn't have applied for a remote job before are now applying, applying for remote jobs. So it can be hard. Like if you've never worked in a remote job before, understanding that it isn't just opening a laptop on your dining table with everything else going on in your house that's not working remotely you actually need like a good place to work good setup fast internet 
no distractions, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I'm weighing that much heavily just because it's, we're getting a lot more candidates now who haven't worked remotely before. And also I've just learned through experience that if someone hasn't had that remote experience before, it can be problematic. It's a lifestyle. Like pre-COVID, like people chose to be remote workers sort of because it like fit their lifestyle. And I think it'd be quite jarring for people who maybe like, you know, don't identify with the internet in the same way or don't like join little swarms of groups of people on the internet in the same way. Because you kind of got to do that with a remote company where you're like buying into the culture in a way that it's like a little bit different buy-in when you just rock up to the parking lot and, and walk into the building. Yeah. And also like there's more, I guess working remotely, you have to perform. Like you can't just waste three hours of the day going out to lunch with your buddies and talking in the kitchen or whatever it is happens in corporate land these days. You measure on output, not inputs. Like it's not, I have this saying performance by attendance. Like it's not, that's not how it, how it works. And then also Peter Levels wrote a blog post from Nomad List, wrote a blog post just recently about there's remote and not remote and then there's synchronous and asynchronous work. And that was an interesting concept because like, Remote is very much asynchronous where the work can kind of happen any time of day so long as that happens, which is really good. It has a lot of upside to it, especially as an employee. But also then you have to be self-motivated and and structure a day yourself. If your productivity is high at 6 a.m. in the morning, then you have to have that discipline to be up at 6 and working then. And, you know, you clock off at, you know, lunchtime or 2 p.m. or whatever. There's some discipline things there that you need to enforce on yourself as opposed to having, you know, a corporate job where the time clock, you know, you're there from nine to five and that's it. I've noticed a lot of remote organizations trying to address this by having people have work buddies all day long where they literally like, I'm such a big fan of async, but there are benefits to synchronizing all day long as well. So I think it's an interesting choice for founders. It hurts my heart to see bad resumes that sell poorly. This is a tough problem to solve, but let's at least focus on the candidates. I'm sure there's a lot that DJ can do as well, but what can they do to get the best shot at getting your money? I mean, I've looked at a lot of resumes. I've been in business 22 years or something, and I've hired a couple of hundred people, maybe, maybe more. So I've seen like 10,000 resumes. I'm still seeing the same templates I was seeing like in the early 2000s. So there's something broken here. I don't know whether people are taught how to do a resume in school and that's, that's where it ends or something. But for me, one of the first things I, I'm looking at in the resume is experience. Like, is the experience relevant and what have they done that's relevant to this position? So that's what I'm looking for straight away. So if I have to dig for that, that's problematic. Some of the basic stuff that people do that's wrong is like that experience stuff's on page three and they've got like yes. what they did in high school on page one. I'm like, that was 10 years ago. I don't care. Like it's totally irrelevant. I don't need three pages of filler. Just give me the summary. I want to see that experience and what you've done. So I guess structuring the, the resume so that's up front is you know, probably for me anyway, the way that I review the resumes. So one of the patterns that you're pointing out that I've noticed is the one thing about like a lot of candidates is that they, they don't make a lot of resumes. So they don't know, you know, this stuff. Employers care so much about your skills vis-a-vis -vis your experience. So they don't want like the skill clusters and all that kind of bullshit. Like we want to get a sense for like what you did in a context. 
And then we draw implications from that as to whether there'll be crossover with our context. So I agree that like getting to the crux of like what you did where matters kind of the most. Any kind of like design feature detracts from our ability to get to that experience that we want to see. And you want to like some of the simple stuff too is like it needs to be readable. Like make it a PDF. Don't use a Word doc because the Word doc for me opens in Apple Pages, so it breaks all the formatting and it looks stupid, like it's all over the place and the layout's broken. So make it a PDF so it's a consistent viewing experience and don't use fancy fonts, easy to read. Let me get that information quickly and easily. Don't make me work for it. Like I don't like I've 76 resumes here. I don't have time to spend 15 minutes on each one i actually have in front of me a guy i spoke to yesterday the day before and i I said to him this is literally probably one of the best resumes i've ever seen yeah describe it a little bit it's really clean and one thing that some resumes i see have photos on them if your photo looks like you're not happy or you you know you're in prison that's not a good thing like i (laughs) i want to be excited to talk to you and if i'm like feeling a little scared when i see this like (laughs) serious photo on there that's probably not not ideal so so this guy has his name at his top at the top he has a photo and he looks great in the photo he's happy and smiling like i want to talk to him he looks friendly i'm pro photo as well if executed well i do think if you have a smiling happy face that's a good thing unfortunately I don't have a strong opinion about it, but I do know this. As an employer, I love to see a smiling face that looks like a fun person to work with. Yep. So he's got a photo. He's got his name. He's got a like a short one-liner here. He's, it's like a really good like intro line. He's, Maybe someone's going to poach him away from you. <laughs> well, he's motivated by money, which is good. So that works for me like those those in some ways those are good people to hire because you know you know what motivates them they're straight up so he's got an engineering degree and he has on here like that would be one of my first questions you've just finished an engineering degree why aren't you being an engineer so his first line is engineer changing to a tech support job helping wordpress users fix issues migrations exactly what we're doing so you know he answers that that's like one of the first questions i'm going to have and an objection to hiring him he's like spent four years doing an engineering degree or five years why would i hire him he's answered that question straight up so that you know that's another point like you know there's a certain degree at least 10 or 20 percent of the resumes in this list of this 76 i've just put a note here that they're a resume ninja which to me that's my my shorthand for there's like a zero relevant experience to doing anything with wordpress or internet or remote I don't understand. Why did you apply? Did you have to apply for a certain number of jobs today? Like, I don't, I don't get it. So that's, I call those resume ninjas. He's answered that objection I'd have. But his education is actually last. It's, it's only a one-pager, but his education is at the bottom. And that's probably one of the things I don't, I don't really care about degrees. Like, for the type of roles we're hiring, a degree doesn't matter. And, and that background doesn't matter to me. That's fairly common amongst DJ users as well. Yeah, I've never hired someone based on university or, or degree background. But again, that's in kind of IT and the tech space. It's going to be different if it's like, a, I guess, a medical role or something like that where that matters. He actually has experience in a commercial customer-facing tech support role. And he actually has like the things that like really, really tick the boxes for me. He's the, a record holder for upsells in this particular company in the biggest upsells i think ever so he's just put his achievements there 
So that's interesting. So, so achievements and results is another key thing I want to flag up because with a lot of bad resumes, they essentially like give you a job description of what anyone in that job would have done. <laughs> and the whole point of your experience is to share like what you uniquely brought to the table in that experience that indicates that you're unique. It sounds like it's relevance is the big thing. Supporting more than 100 customers per day. I'm just like, okay, it's exactly what I'm looking for. I, I put in there, it's customer-facing, commercial. You know, he's exactly, he's worked in this job for another company, essentially. He's worked for a hosting company before. So it's pretty much exactly this sort of job that he's the kind of almost perfect candidate. Tweaking like your experience and your resume slightly to, to start that conversation with whatever employer you're going for is actually not as high energy as most candidates suspect. A lot of candidates, they get frustrated. No one wants to hire them. And then they just start spamming everybody. I heard this quote that I really want to like sort of tap into a little bit more, but it was a profound idea to me. It was this idea that language is the key to community. Like if you speak the right language, people will instantly recognize that you're part of the group kind of thing. And so like one of the best cover letters I ever got was like, hey, I took a look at your blah, blah, blah. I have experience that's really relevant. Like, let me know if it's a good fit. It was like two sentences is the point. And like he was speaking my language. And then so was the resume. Yep. Really understanding your target, you know, and that's why I wanted Brennan's voice on this is like, I think candidates underestimate how busy entrepreneurs are. Like you think you're busy applying to jobs? Like you really got to know right away, which is like why I'm totally happy with a picture, very clear experience and a two sentence cover letter. If you speak in a way that indicates you're not that familiar with WordPress or you haven't familiarized yourself with Brennan's business, it's like an instant deal killer, basically. I'm trying to qualify out and I'll qualify in basically, right? When you have... 100 resumes to look at, you're looking for the thing that's going to make it a no, not a yes, as a first pass anyway. Is there anything else you want to share on this front? Probably like consistency as well. Like one of the things I ask for is a LinkedIn profile link. If they're working online, I kind of, I'm not a huge fan of LinkedIn. I don't go on LinkedIn. I don't really care about it, but it's like a, a, a test for me. Like if the resume says one thing and LinkedIn says something completely different, something's not right there. So you know, being consistent with what you're saying, like don't say you worked at one job and I go look at your LinkedIn and it's a different job or you've been running your own business for the last five years. That's fine. Like I don't have an issue with that. But again, explain to me, you've been, you say you're running this agency, why are you applying for a job? Like I need that explained to me. And then we ask the expected salary, which some people are going to be funny about, but like for me, it's a qualifier as well. And I'm happy to pay more. So I think we had we had on the job that we paid 25 to 35 an hour. I'm happy to pay a lot of money if I get a lot for that money. It's not, you know, I'm happy to negotiate, but if you put a crazy salary on there, you need to sell me on it. I'm happy to pay more, but if you put 100k a year on there, you need to be selling me on that. Like if I'm spending like 25 bucks an hour is 50k a year. So if I'm paying double what my budget is, I need to be sold on it. Like tell me why. So I guess just being mindful of of some of those things being consistent and thinking about it from my perspective, like as a business owner. One of the other common mistakes is like you get a resume that says, I'm trying to do this. I want this. I want that. It's like, you're not really selling me what's in it for me as a business owner hiring you. Tell me what I'm getting for, you know, it's, it's a sales process, I guess, really in effect. 
and I, some of these problems I think with their resumes are because people aren't taught how to sell or market themselves so that's that's a bit problematic and they learn how to do a resume at high school and that's probably their extent of the experience so being straight up like I'm, I'm a human like I, you know sometimes I feel like people are trying to trick me into hiring them almost I'm not like some magical gatekeeper that's bestowing jobs upon people you know I'm a business owner trying to make money want to hire good people to work with I'm human too. I, you know, I, I hate when people call me sir. Like sometimes you get like team in the Philippines. You know, they, by default they'll call you sir, which is one of the things I hate. Like I'm not some magical gatekeeper with all the power. You know, again, it's language is the key to the group. You know, you want to get into the group, you have to demonstrate that you can calibrate and speak the language of the group. And yeah, maybe some people don't like that reality. A lot of times when you're used to like applying to schools and, and large organizations, you are like essentially ticking boxes and like perhaps your resume ends up in the final box and like somebody calls you. It's interesting on the other side of the aisle, Brennan, like candidates are frustrated by these moving targets. And so a lot of them just say, I just want to get on the phone. Like, I just feel like if someone met me, you know, the reality is, is like, that's not, I mean, Indeed has a product kind of like that, but for blue collar stuff, like the reality is, is you're not getting on the phone unless you do this work. <laughs> so at least for now, you have to demonstrate your professional quality by understanding the professionalism that, you know, I think Brennan's speaking about like in a small organization, you need to know how to, you know, interact with humans in this way. Probably the people who are putting jobs up on, on DC jobs are probably like output and performances. Again, it's not performance by attendance is they actually need tangible output from you like they're small businesses or even you know even if they have a team of 50 every head counts it's not like corporate land where you can do nothing for five years and nobody cares like it's really you know those businesses are smaller they're more agile the business owners care about each of the staff members and their output so you know these aren't like fixed boxes that you're being put in in terms of roles they're dynamic so they can change we can do it and most businesses at this size can too like adapt the role to fit what you're looking for particularly like remote businesses are probably the best at this because there's just you know we can move these variables around to suit so thinking with that in mind like it really is about performance and what can you bring to the business as opposed to just like you said like a job description which means nothing you know it's it's really about that output and also, if, you, if you're, like you mentioned, like you're, you're talking about a higher level of communication, like if you're begging for a job and calling you, sir, and like, please rain down your monies on me, that's no way to enter into the language of, hey, like, I know I don't have specific experience, but I have a specific interest and here's what it is. I think that experience will bring something to the table. And just because you didn't write it in a job ad doesn't mean it couldn't be of value to you. But if you try to skirt the issue and like hope no one notices, it's like people are going to notice. <laughs> it's like, and as business owners, we like to be sold sometimes. Like it's, you know, we enjoy that, you know, it's, and it's also like it's good to see someone like come up with some sort of unique approach, you know. 100%. The final piece of advice I got is uh, don't ever say you're the perfect fit. Because yeah. uh, the first thing, the, if, any business owner is going to be like, well, how do you know that? Because like, yeah. we haven't even talked yet. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> totally agree. Thanks for coming by the podcast, uh, Brandon. I appreciate it. We appreciate it. It's good. It's good fun.
All right, big shout out to Brennan Tully with some wonderful insights. And I'm just such an optimist. Like I look at all these candidates very similar to the way Brennan does it and and think like, man, there's a job out there for everybody. Like all these people are special, <laughs> you know? And if they just presented themselves a little bit better, we could get them a job, you know? See, this is why you're not in charge of uh of the recruiting, Dan. Too much of an optimist. Yeah. I mean our yeah. our our recruiting team is more decisive, more professional, more high level. It's like, look, if you cannot present yourself well in a hiring situation, how are you going to do it in a professional situation? Correct. I'm kind of like you, man. I think I'm I'm an optimist. Like I'll find somebody and I'll figure out something that they're good at. But that's not the way that we're kind of looking at people from this recruiting perspective, right? When a company comes to us and they want to like put the best person in the chair for the job, you have to be decisive. You have to find that one person in that pile of 400. That's the right fit. But I will say, look, the rest of us were usually that 399. And so it's worth talking a little bit about like the rest of us and how we can be better. And one of the things is, is like, it is a meta skill, right? Like just because you're good at some technical task in a business doesn't necessarily mean you're great at selling yourself as a potential team member. So I do think there's a lot of value in the sorts of things that Brennan's pointing out. So often I see you know, people on their resumes, essentially describing the job that anybody would have done had they had that job. You know, that's a common one, like really trying to figure out like what the hook is going to be that brings in, you know, an employer's interest into your application. Well, you are just being too nice, my friend. I've got only (laughs) negative thoughts over here in my head about this. So, well, most candidates suck, right? That's kind of the, well, that's one thing, but not that harsh. I think couple of things. One is like remote is getting super competitive right now. Like the most competitive it's ever been. When we first started Dynamite Jobs, it was a real advantage to be remote because you were kind of like meeting your people, right? It was like, well, I recognize this. You recognize this. Let's get together. Now it's like, oh, everybody's remote. yeah. <laughs> and now you're having to compete with basically every business. So it's not so much of an advantage anymore. That's one thing. The other thing is like it is very hard to stick out in the noise with like the 400 people that apply. So how can you do it? You know, well, first thing is you can do it by like not making mistakes. Well, one of the things I really liked and Brendan said like, yeah, if you're looking at 100 resumes, you're not like looking for the like the amazing one right away. You're looking for like get rid of all the crappy ones. That's the first step. Yeah, we call that like the first flush. You're really in my mind, you're looking to get on the phone with somebody. Because if you're like me, Dan, once you get on the phone, it's over. I'm going to close you. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter what side of the aisle we're on. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's the number one thing our candidates say is just give me a chance to get on the phone. You know? Yeah. And that's fair too. Because I think like, once you get on the phone, you get a, an opportunity to really demonstrate yourself. But it's also, it's also just lazy. I'm a real big believer on this like language is the key to access idea. And it's like part of why a phone conversation is like, oh, I get this person, like I'm vibing with them. I can see what they, what they do know and what they don't know. And I can kind of tell if they haven't like been a part of this industry too much. So they don't know the lingo or whatever. When I ask them what would be like a relatively simple question for someone who's done X, like I can tell that they haven't done it. And so the reality is, is like those things are harder to get into writing. And that means you got to spend time to do so. And the biggest mistake that candidates are making is number one, not putting enough effort into it because they're not focused. You know, this stuff gets a whole lot easier when you've spent time doing the work that you're applying for. 
you know, how do I get a job if I don't have three to five years of experience? Well, you do something that is equivalent to three to five years of experience, and then you explain why that's a better value proposition for the potential employer. It's just that simple, right? But actually doing that is is complicated. Yeah. And the other thing too is a definition on the employer side. So a lot of times the reason why you get a bunch of trash applications or people that you don't feel are good fits is because you haven't taken the opportunity to articulate yourself in your job post and what your company does, or you don't have vision around the opportunity. Yeah. We have a case of the cobbler shoes often in our own job postings. I understand how complicated that can be when you're hiring fast and there's a lot of stuff to do and it can be difficult to frame up exactly why your job is special. But like you said at the top, Ian, it's a good message for employers and a piece of internal data is that a lot of these positions are getting a lot more competitive. And if you don't want your staffing costs to go up, then you know you need to target to a different geography, a different skill set, different experience level, or you need to accentuate the culture. Those are sort of your options. Here's one thing too that I didn't fully realize, Dan, until we started this uh, company is it's like really hard to promote and vet like for your own company, this is going to sound weird, but like it's almost better to have a middleman. And I never thought this was going to be the case. I was always like skeptical of like recruiters, right? I was like, who can hire better than we can? Like this is our organization. But the cool thing about having a middleman is they get to like understand who you are, they get to represent you, and then they get to play both sides, which is pretty cool, right? Because you can a lot of times find out like people's intentions without having to talk to them. So basically, candidates lie to employers. That's what you're getting Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> and employers, well, employers lie to, to recruiters all the time about like, or, or they're just not forthcoming with the information or the opportunity or they're having a hard time articulating it. So it's kind of the job of the person in the middle to distill what both sides want and then bring them together. Yeah. It's kind of like the same thing with the business broker. You know, it's like, it's really hard to have these conversations with each other because you're invested so much. That's why the flat rate recruiting was, I think, the innovation that we saw to be important because if it weren't flat rate, we would be incentivized to drive up the cost of the employment when we knew our clients could afford it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I do think that there's an interesting take on flat rate, whereas with the business brokers, they're just trying to get someone to hire, you know? I thought that was interesting. In fact, I was speaking with a team member today and they were mentioning that like they were a little bit surprised that one of our clients like hired a lower level person. And like, that's not something they like saw a lot. And like, he wasn't incentivized to say no hire the higher level person. He ultimately like had to trust that experience of that CEO that what they wanted was someone with that particular fit at a lower rate, even though internally we were, had some concerns and thought that maybe there was a better candidate, but you know, that's the kind of like negotiation you're talking about in good faith sort of thing. And also just like the the asymmetry of the information too. And this isn't like about taking advantage of people or anything. It's like the organization knows so much, you know, and the candidate knows so little. And I think a lot of times it's hard for the organization to express to the candidate like what the opportunity is, what this involves. They're kind of talking about the job, right? Whereas like the recruiter or us in between can kind of like see the trajectory of the two parties and like understand if it's going to be a good fit. Well, that's it for this one, Ian kind of went in two different directions with this one, but I think it's worth mentioning. These are really like live conversations we're having every day. And a lot of the narrative here on the show in the next few months, we'll continue to talk about this issue of throwing spaghetti against the wall, finding product market fit, and figuring out ways to scale it up 
and to stay sane in the process. So we'd love to hear from you guys, of course, whether you're hiring or applying. What are your pain points? You know, what annoys you about the hiring process? Obviously, we're really engaging these problems on a day-to-day basis. That's it, boss man. You have any parting shots? I got to get back to work. Talk to you (laughs) soon. (laughs) All right. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning. Have a great weekend. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.